Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face. Now I have a machine gun. So what's your name, Icy? Stuntman Mike. Stuntman Mike's your name. You ask anybody. Hey, Warren. Who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? We are the knights who say... Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Don't worry, it's self-guiding. But I know you don't want to be here forever. You know, I got things I want to do in my life. Wayne. You got red on you. Statistical fact. Cops will never pull over a man with a huge bomb in his car. Why? They fear this man. They know he sees farther than they. And he will bind them with ancient logics. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we take a look at the movies that you will never, ever look at in a film studies course. And even though this film is well lauded this week, I think the uh, appellation still applies. We're going to be looking at a... Uh, uh, it's a coming-of-age boyhood drama in which you understand the true meaning of friendship taught to you by Tiny Horses, uh, Fight Club. That's right. And uh, well, this is friendship def- is magic. It is. This does maintain the cult status that we try to uh, look for when we're not looking specifically at a genre film, though. But before we get into all of that, we've got to introduce the talking, the disembodied voices inside your ears or your cars or um, your uh, generic computing or uh, MP3 devices. And uh, so I begin to the extreme left, sir, if you'd introduce yourself. I am Arthur Gordon, and much like the interview, I always pull out before the impending consequences. Bless you. Moment of silence for that one. <laughs> I, 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 I literally have nothing to say. To my right, sir, if you'd introduce yourself. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. It's a true story. Uh, to my left, if you would. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and if I had a tumor, I'd name it Marla. you kind of stole mine my name is dustin sells and when i unlock my chakra um, my spirit animal is a penguin moving right along we are going to be talking about fight club dear listener we need to warn you this is not a review show it's an analysis show there's going to be a lot of spoilers you know this is one of those movies that's known for its twist if somehow you've gone 15 years not knowing the twist of this film uh, as it, turn- it could be possible. As it turns out, um, you know, Richard Gere defends Edward Norton the whole time, thinking he's in- is innocent, but he's actually guilty. <laughs> oh my God. I believe it. <laughs> deep, deep fucking cut. Wow. I'm losing this case. You know why I'm losing this case? Because my fucking client is fucking lying to me. I never, 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 never lied to you. Bullshit. No more bullshit. No more games. Everybody thinks you did this. Everybody. I'm the only one who believes you, and I am that close. So I want it all out. All of it. Right now. Right here. Did you underline that book? Hey, 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 look at me. Did you underline that book? No. 
No, no, I didn't. I don't believe you. And so uh, we will be spoiling after our quick synopsis and quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. So if you have for some reason not seen Fight Club and do not wish to be spoiled, uh, your warning has already occurred. Let's begin with a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. An insomniac office worker looking for a way to change his life crosses paths with a devil-may-care soap maker and they form an underground fight club that evolves into something much, much more. All right, well, let's begin with those quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. We're going to begin with the picker of the film, Mr. Dalton Stewart, if you would, sir. Well, I think it should come as no surprise that when we decided anything goes, favorite films, that this is going to be the film I picked. Um, I've mentioned before on the show, probably very early in its inception, that this is in no small part the reason I'm doing this show now, listener. Um, So, in full disclosure, I cannot possibly be uh, unbiased about this film. Well, this film was the um, victim of your first serious analysis, right? Yeah, uh, this is the first film I ever did serious critical analysis for, and again, this this film is the reason uh, I do this show. Um, Without Fight Club... I don't think I get into film in the way that I, I do. Uh, I just don't think it happens. Be, this is the film that is responsible for me loving movies to the extent that I do now because it wasn't until I, I saw Fight Club that I realized that films could be so, so much more um, than just 90 minutes uh, with a bucket of popcorn. Um, also, in full disclosure, listener, I did not watch Fight Club in preparation for this episode. That said, I've seen it probably 30 times. So disregard all that he says. Uh, frequent listeners will know that I do not rewatch movies. I just don't. Um, so, uh, so take that for what it's worth. I've seen this movie more times than I can count. I can probably quote every word of it, and I just watched a couple months ago. All of those disclaimers being said, I love this film dearly. Uh, I get something fresh and exciting from it every time I view it. It's hilarious. It is dark. It is interesting. It is thought-provoking. It, it is everything good cinema should be, and that's all I'll say about that. So there you have it, dear listener. Um, Fight Club is a gateway drug. It starts out as a couple guys hanging out, just doing some fun stuff together, and then it devolves into mayhem. You heard it here. You heard it first. To my left, Mr. Arthur Gordon, um, what is your quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down review? Guys, I just don't buy the hype of Fight Club. Ooh! Fuck you. <laughs> I'm I'm ready for a fight now, lads. There's the thing. I will. This start a club. First could. night, you have to fight. We've already kind of started a club, so yeah. I guess we can just integrate fighting as part of it. I uh, I just I don't connect with this movie for some reason. I recognize there are a lot of good things about it. There are some great lines, some great writing, some great performances. I love Brad Pitt. I love it. Yeah, Norton. he is great in this. I love Brad Pitt, and this this is one of those performances where you see how good Brad Pitt really is. Yeah, I love the unfolding of the ending and the reveal, how that all comes into play. I think it's just there are some really good things done, but for some reason I just don't connect with it. I've I've seen it. Uh, this is the second time that I've watched it. Uh, but there's some kind of connection there that's that's not clicking for me. And so it's it's almost like House of the Devil. I recognize that this is a very good movie. It is. I, I mean, I'm not going to argue that. But for mm-hmm. me, it just it doesn't work for some reason. I don't know what it is mm-hmm. because I want to like it. Because it just I, doesn't connect for you on that kind of I, visceral I level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I can see that. There's definitely films that you have to be at a particular point in your life. And again... This is a film uh, for, you know, angsty, neurotic, neurotic 15-year-old boys. I mean... Which that, Dalton Stewart certainly qualifies to this day. And explains yep. my ex, too. 
I uh, the the other thing is this was one of those movies I didn't watch this until just a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it has been so talked up for me. Yeah, that I think that may have kind of hurt because I think I was expecting something completely. I don't know what, but there are there are other Fincher films that I would choose to watch over this, and uh, that's just a personal preference, almost more than anything. Else. Yeah, I, that's what I think yours boils down to. If I try to be objective, I think I, I could admit that this is not Fincher's best work. That probably would go to Zodiac uh, or Seven or Benjamin Button. Um, but again, yeah, I can't. I can't yeah, no, I'm gonna. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I think, a, Finch, I think a shaking yeah. of the his head face went. Curious case. Okay, that was a curious choice. Uh, but you know, I think <laughs> I, I think Zodiac is probably his undisputed masterpiece, his magnum opus. But I, again, for me, this just has such a place in my heart that yeah. It, it, yeah. If if you put out all of Fincher's films, this is probably the first one I'm going to pick, unless I've seen it, you know, within a couple months. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's certainly the film that most people connect Fincher with too, and I think that's yeah, that's something. So I'm I'm walking a line here. Certainly, I, I, I get that. I think I would recommend people to watch it, but for me personally, I'm not a huge fan. So we're going to move on now to our co-host. That uh, if we do form a fight club, that I want to fight uh, first because I want to destroy something beautiful. Um, Ms. Alexander Bahannon, if you would, ma'am. Well, I'll take that as the most strange compliment I've ever received. Um, <laughs> yeah, this film is this film is great. I've only watched it a handful of times. It's not my you know go to weekend movie. Honestly, whenever I was gearing up to watch it again, I'm like, oh. I'm kind of dreading this because I know it's pretty grim dark and um, it's been raining all weekend here and I've just been oh, a lot of a lot of darkness outside. But I actually really enjoyed myself more than I thought I would. I think that I've also matured along with the film and so I'm a- more readily able to appreciate it. Um, in terms of lighting, it's really, really interesting. The choices uh, he makes. Oh, like the- yeah. Finch will light the shit out of a movie, man. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, okay, so there will be words about that, I guess, later on. Um, and the edits are fun in the in the kind of fourth wall breaking satire meta perspective mm-hmm. on the film is also really neat with the, I think one of my favorite parts in the very beginning is that Ikea um, catalog sequence. Yes. That is just brilliant. It's I mean, I sequence. who would have thought to do that, you know, and all of the other things that are, you know, directly talking to the audience and all these little pieces that just really make this movie so interesting and in I feel really worth my time. Um I guess maybe one complaint is that it it feels really long. I didn't realize that it was long, but it feels really long in places. It gets kind of Dragged out like the Even, transition from Fight Club to Project Mayhem yeah. always feels kind of like no. Here we're tying these two movies together almost it, in a I, way. Yeah, even I will admit that the that second and last half of the second act really do kind of drag a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we get how many times can we get Marla in and out of our lives, and she comes back and goes away, and then oh, she's back and all this stuff. If but you just stop tonguing it; it would go away. that's a that's a good one um and then i I also like the fact that um the author of the original book um said that this at least this is what i heard that the movie's ending is pretty much the definitive ending as opposed to the book's actual ending which is fabulous he likes the film ending uh, quite a bit more well thank you very very much uh miss bohannon and unlike uh the um 
narrator of the film. I, uh, like Arthur Gordon, did not come to this movie at a strange time in my life. <laughs> and uh, as such, it does not, in the same way, sort of connect on that uh, visceral level that it did with so many other people. I remember being in college. I mean, I, I graduated high school in 1999, the year this film came out. And so this movie was being watched in many a dorm room. And I always kind of never came in at the beginning, so I didn't want to watch it. Because I didn't want to know, you know, until I would, could watch the whole thing, and then I just never got around to it. And so I'm an adult, married with kids. By the time I finally get to this movie, mm-hmm. and I, I definitely see its excellencies. I definitely see the intricacies of its plotting. I, I don't really find a lot of fl- flaws or faults in it, but I, I don't, I don't connect either in that in that way. I think this movie is really fun to watch. It's really uh, enjoyable cinema, but it's not one of those movies where I go, man, this is something that speaks to me and who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, as a person, and uh, again, I, I do think there there's something about timing when you come to a movie. You know, we talk about nostalgia goggles a lot on this show, and it's something other than nostalgia that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's really just that place in your life where you really, really sort of identify uh, with with what's going on. You know, I, I remember seeing films about children in peril before I was a father, and then after, and it's just a different experience for me. And uh, th- those kind of things, I-, I-, I think, kind of play into the viewing. And so as a result, I, I still definitely see its excellencies. You know, I-, I-, I think maybe this may speak to some of the uh, the critical panning that this film suffered. Not panning, but, you know, questionability. Yeah, it didn't, go over, all of it. It didn't go over great when it first came out. Uh, Roger Ebert fa- famously hated it, much like he hated Blue Velvet. Yeah, and I-, I think Roger's wrong on that. But I do understand sort of, you know, if he's not in that place, why it wouldn't communicate as well. But what I, I get different than Ebert, and I, I dare not quibble with the uh, the great man from Chicago. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong, the dude knew what he was talking about, but not not when it comes to Spike Club. Sorry. And I would say this: it's a really, really well made thriller, um, psychological thriller. It's got a lot of humor, you know, as we've talked about. It's, it's brilliantly shot. I think the mise en scène is is fantastic. Um, but again, it's just it's not that movie that I'm going to come back to over and over again. You know, Dalton is famous for not rewatching, and I'm sort of famous for. Um, sort of compulsively rewatching all the things, and this is one of the few f- films. This is the second time I ever saw it. I saw it the first time, you know, many many years ago, and uh, I rewatched it for the show. I mean, it's just one of those things I just don't return to mm-hmm. as a result. So that's uh, sort of where I'm coming from on Fight Club. But let's set this all aside. It must be Thursday because Dustin's wearing his cornflower blue tie. It must be. I'm always wearing a cornflower blue tie, all the time. Can you get this icon of cornflower blue? I showed it to my man over here. He loved it, didn't you? It's a great moment. It's a great moment. Anybody who's ever had to be in a meeting they didn't want to be in wishes they could smile a bloody smile at everyone in the room. That's what I always do. So let's move on, though, <laughs> and uh, let's do what we're actually here to do, which is to bring analysis to this film. And I, I guarantee you, dear listener, you want to stay tuned because this film is rife with analysis. I go first to you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? So when I watched Fight Club for the first time, I really think that I was drawn to it for the same reasons that the narrator or Jack um, is drawn to it in the film, uh, in the participating in Fight Club, I mean. Uh, and that's because being 15, being, you know, at that strange time in your life, um, when you're, you know, you're early to mid-teens, you don't really know what you're about, you're feeling very neurotic and confused about the world around you, and you don't really feel like you have a lot of power or agency in your life. Uh, and that's the whole reason Jack participates in Fight Club is he's trying to take control back of his life. It's the whole reason his brain creates Tyler Durden, is he's trying to find some semblance of control uh, for himself uh, in this you know, this age of uh, new masculinity. I mean, this is definitely a film for Gen X, but I think it's everything it says is still applicable to millennials. Um, 
But that's where I'm going to stop with common things that are thought and said about this film. Because the reason this film became popular with teenage boys is because of that. Because they like the idea of fighting, of like doing something tough and masculine. Um, men, men are now, in a way, never before in the history of you know masculinity, being encouraged to be more open with their feelings, to be more expressive. And what we have is a lack of acceptable ways for men to do that. We live in a culture that tells men to open up and to feel, but then calls them a faggot when they do that. And that's a real problem. So I think Fight Club addresses this in a lot of ways. Because at the start of the film, Jack is participating in what he sees as the only way for him to express himself in a world where he has no expression. I'm expressing with my full capabilities, and now I'm living in correctional facilities. Cause some don't agree with how I do this. I get straight and meditate like a Buddhist. He lives in a condo full of IKEA furniture. He is just another cog in the machine. But I don't want to stop there. Because that's where a lot of the interpretations that are I find problematic of this film stop is they just see this film as well it's it's defending you know traditional masculinity uh, because the best thing in the narrator's life is when he's in these fights. What I think Fight Club does though is it subverts traditional ideas about masculinity. Um, it does uphold them in some ways and it upholds you know this this place in our mind of the tough guy. But it subverts them, and it kind of, in a strange way, reconciles these ways of looking at masculinity. So early in the film, Jack is, you know, lost. He can't sleep. His only solace in life is going to these therapy groups where he can cry, where he can have an emotional release, and it's ruined by Marla because she's a faker, just like him, but also because she's a woman. And obviously the last thing he wants to do is get his emotional release the same way a woman is doing it. So his brain creates Tyler Durden. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about masculinity, listener, uh, throughout my analysis, and I, I want us to be able to establish a working definition of, of what that means. So I'm going to quote Michael S. Kimmel and his work, Masculinity is Homophobia. Uh, Kimmel says that we equate manhood with being strong, successful, capable, reliable, and in control. So for the purposes of, of my analysis, just think about that when you think when you hear me say masculine. Strong, successful, capable, reliable, in control. I just want to throw in one bit of critique of his definition. Yeah, go because ahead. Because that describes most of the gay guys I know. I'm just saying. I just well, I want to be like that too. Like scrap, you know, being a dude. I want all of those character traits. And I know that's like I'm, his perspective on it. But your point's well taken. I, I think you're absolutely right. Kimmel, yeah. Kim, that's just that's Kimmel just laying out a groundwork definition of of how masculinity can act. My quibbles that's, with that's, Kimmel. That's from a much longer article. No, no doubt, no doubt. I just I just want to throw that out since we are sort of truncating, you know, that sort of thing. I think that quibble is worthwhile. I, I understand. Yeah, I, I get that. The problem uh, with traditional masculinity, and again, I'm, g- I'm going to quote from Kimmel real briefly, is that what it leads to is, quote, chronic tears of emasculation, emotional emptiness, and a gendered rage that leaves a swath of destruction in its wake. Mm-hmm. Now, fair, yeah. I-, I think it's fair to say that when this film opens, um, Jack is emotionally empty. Um, but participating in this gendered rage does nothing to serve that. Yes, early in the film, we see him participating in these fights and talking about Fight Club and how nothing is solved, but nothing mattered because they all felt saved after beating the shit out of one another. And he, you know, he he talks about you know the guy uh, that works in the mailroom that can't remember what kind of pins you ordered, but he was a god for five minutes when he trounced the maitre d of the local food court. 
and we see the guy from the food court whose nose is broken, and he looks happy. They all look thrilled. Isn't the preacher that gets uh, sprayed with the garden hose, doesn't he show up later he in shows the fights? Up, yeah, yeah. He, he shows up later, and he also beats the shit out of somebody. Yeah, he's he's one of the people that we see in that montage of trying to convince someone to fight with you, and he the pa- the priest, he's not a pastor, he's a priest, uh, shows up, and it's one of it's a great scene. Mend the cloth, be scrappy. I'm just saying. <laughs> he was pretty jacked, I have to say. I'd fight Lincoln. Skinny guys fight till they're burger. But I say that to say this, listener. That's only the first third of the film, and a lot of people's analysis of this film stops in that first section of the film, and that's a problem because there's so much more going on right around the second part of this film. Um, in the scene between Edward Norton. Uh, his character Jack and Jared Leto's character, who's credited in the film as Angel Face, uh, Jack has kind of begun to feel scorned by Tyler because he feels like he's paying more attention to the Jared Leto character, uh, and that's a really a, a, a key sticking point for the homoerotic readings of this film. Uh, and those are great, by the way. Um, if you really want to check out some very different readings on this film, check out some of the homoerotic ones that read uh, the Jack and Tyler relationship as one being. Uh, of homoeroticism and uh, being two men in love. Uh, I think those do a lot to take the piss out of the readings that, you know, think this film upholds traditional gender values and traditional masculine values and uphold violence uh, as a good thing. Because in this scene, for the first time, we see that violence has consequences. Early in the film, yes, they're beaten, uh, they're bloodied and beaten. Um, but, you know, everyone's feeling pretty great after the fight. You know what I mean? Yes, they're beaten and bloodied, but they're feeling a sense of euphoria. Uh, this speaks to something that Yvonne Tasker spoke about in an article she wrote um, about action hero masculinity. Uh, she said that within the structures of action cinema, suffering, particularly torture, operates as a set of narrative hurdles to overcome the tests that a hero must survive to obtain something greater. And yeah, we see all that in the first half of the film, because yes, they're bloodied and beaten, but as we keep talking about, their their eyes are open. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm fine with that. I am enlightened. But the turning point in this film is that scene with Jack and Angel Face. Because for the first time in this film, we really focus on the act of violence. All of the music in this film goes out, for the most part, except for a soft hum and just kind of an ominous, pulsating uh, score. Um, the cheers from the crowd give way to silence, and their they, their faces go from one of elation to shock as Jack brutally beats this guy's face in. And I, I do want to read uh, just the, the line uh, of his internal monologue from the film. I felt like putting a bullet between the eyes of every panda that wouldn't screw to save its species. I wanted to open the dump valves on oil tankers and smother all the French beaches I'd never see. I wanted to breathe smoke. And at the end of it, this dude has no teeth. His eyes are swollen shut. His nose is shattered. And they leave the fight, and Tyler says to him, where did you go, psycho boy? And he says, I felt like destroying something beautiful. And I think that's a real turning point in this film, because after that, Jack and Tyler don't really have much of a relationship. Um, They crash the car together with Tyler questioning just how far Jack is willing to go in this pursuit of... uh, opening his eyes. At this point, uh, Tyler has gone from being this kind of charming, cocksure guy to being a quasi-fascist revolutionary uh, with the start of Project Mayhem. Tyler has gone on to become this kind of quasi-anarcho-fascist amalgam. Um, He stopped being this charming, sexy guy we knew early in the film, and he's all about this new world order that he, he wants to usher in. 
And Jack kind of stops at that. I, I don't know if it's really response to the violence that he enacted, uh, but I think the, that part in the film is really supposed to make us uncomfortable with the violence that we've seen prior to this. Um, and he sees in Tyler all the bad things that are coming from him, that are coming from within him. And this is obviously before he realizes who Tyler is exactly. So what happens when Jack finds out who Tyler is? He realizes that all of this madness, all this anarchy, all of this mayhem uh, is from him. And so he sets out to stop it. The last thing he wants to do is let this guy level a couple of city blocks, even if it isn't going to result in any casualties, as Tyler assures him, everyone um, that's gonna, that could potentially die are Project Mayhem. So Jack sets out to stop him. He he has embraced that violence is not the answer, that beating the shit out of people is not the way to get in touch with your feelings and to find a way to enlightenment and to find a place in this modern world that doesn't really have a place for violence and traditional masculine values anymore because we've realized now in modern living that they're inadequate and they're outdated. But he does have to commit a final act of violence. He shoots himself in the face to get rid of Tyler. So what I think this film says, really at the end of the day, is are there times when violence is necessary? Yeah. Should we be frivolous with that? No. Because you're going to pay the price for it. You're going to have to commit an act of self-sacrifice. And when you lead your life in a, you know, a, a gendered rage that leaves this destruction in its wake, you have to reconcile with yourself what you're doing. And I think that's what Jack does by the end of the film. He says to Marla, you met me at a very strange time in my life. And I think we're given the sense that Jack is better by the end of the film in a lot of ways. He has come to terms with his place in the world, uh, with the place of traditional masculinity, and he's cast it aside. And no, Fight Club isn't saying the world's not a violent place. It is saying it's a very violent place. But what it's also saying is there's a lot of gray areas in this world, and sometimes... um, Evil must be with evil purged. Uh, And I think that's what Jack does by the end of the film is he reconciles um, what he wants to be with the evil traditional... What I think is the the traditional values of masculinity are very evil and self-indulgent and destructive. And he reconciles with himself that, yeah, that's what society is telling me to be, but I have to recognize that there's really no place for that in this world and I have to make my own way. Well, thank you very much for that excellent reading of masculinity in the film, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexandra Bohannon, what reading would you offer? Well, um, just a couple of quick comments on what Dalton was saying. So one differing interpretation that I've read about some of the masculinity features in this film is that what society is telling men is not to be that kind of super macho, the Tyler Durden. It's... Um, make it's effeminizing everybody, making everyone very feminine. Because I mean, the whole Bob has bitch tits thing. I mean, uh, one interpretation was like t- um, the narrator Jack goes to this support group where everyone's crying, and he rests his face on on the bosom of somebody, and you know, there's breasts, and then he goes home and sleeps. Like it's all this really infantile. Hey, you his know, name is Robert Paulson. His, his name, name is, is Robert, Robert Paulson. Paulson. In death, the members of Project Mayhem do have a name. His name is Robert Paulson. <laughs> Thank you. But that that was one differing interpretation that the Fight Club response is the is not so much a oh well society is telling us that we got to be men and we got to fight and blah. It's mostly 
you know, society is telling us to be these passive, weak, non-hunter gatherers and be consumers, which is more of like a woman's role, and we reject that. That's a different. Well, thing I've read and about I think it. that reading's wrong. Um, and I know a lot of people have that reading. No, I mean, I'm just curious as to your response to that well, reading. Go ahead. I, uh, wow, defend yourself, sir, because I I, t- I tend to agree with that reading. I have this to say about that reading. Um, I think what the first half of the film is struggling with is the two different messages that men are getting in our society about what it means to be masculine. And again, I think that's what Jack is struggling with, is this idea that we are supposed to effeminize ourselves. We are supposed to accept that femininity is, I'm sorry, the better way to be, you dumb fucks. Um, it is superior in every way. But at the same time, he's getting this message that, no, John Wayne was the toughest guy that ever lived, and we should all be just like him. And if you're not, then you clearly like boys. And I think that's what he's struggling with, is a world that tells him two different things. And again, at the end of the film, I think he decides to go his own way. Where is the message the, the message of um, this hyper-masculinity coming from Besides Tyler, Tyler. Well, okay. <laughs> I, like, but that's within the narrator. I mean, the outside world, He, I know he's on the bus and he's like, to the Calvin Klein ad, is that what a man's supposed to look like? Hurt or dirt? But that's all like his internal commentary. Like all the other external um, demonstrations of, well, manlyhood are Bob mm-hmm. has bitch tits, uh-huh. everyone at the support groups, and his boss. And th- those are all like, all like non- office, the- like schlummy kind of, um, we're not man well, men well, with weights and I do think punch it does, people. I think, to, to Alex's point, I do think it does criticize that sort of uh, feminized consumerism. Well, I, again, I, I guess I could see that, and that's what gravitated me so much to it when I was a young man, um, or younger man, I should say. <laughs> Because you're right, uh, most of the non-Fight Club-aligned males in this film are, you know, accepting this this new masculinity. Uh, I would point to the gangster that owns the bar, Lou, um, as being, you know, kind of the old guard uh, of masculinity. And Tyler bleeds all over him. So, again, maybe it's not within the text of the film itself. Maybe I think I'm bringing in my own observations and readings about what I think society is telling men what they should be. Um, into the film. But again, uh, you know, these don't just come from nowhere. Jack has had these thrust upon him his entire life. He talks about his, they talk about their fathers um, and how, I don't know, go to college, get a job, get married, like just do what you're supposed to do, be a man. Um, So I I think that's where it comes from. But again, I I guess you're right within the text of the film proper. um, Most of it is showing the men that aren't in Fight Club as being these quote non-men. But I feel like you're focusing on the wrong things. Not you particularly, Alex. I mean, like, the royal Yeah, I mean, that was just an alternate reading. Because I, this, I mean, whenever I looked up Fight Club analysis, most of it was, like, masculinity in Fight Club, Mm -hmm. femininity in Fight Club, gender in Fight Club, like, all of that. Just to get my bearings on what the scholars were saying on the work. I mean, yeah, most readings about this film that aren't formal readings about, you know, the techniques going on are going to be about violence and they're going to be about gender. Because that's what this film is about. And, well, and consumerism. So I don't have much to say about what this film has to say about consumerism. I think that message is a lot more muddy and muddled than what it has to say about violence and gender. Fair enough. Well, I'm not going to talk about either of those things (laughs) for my reading. I felt um, that this, I did do a quick search to see if there was, what? Did you just talk about something so you could talk about something else? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 she asked a question about something. 
before she started talking about something. Completely different circumstances. Yeah, of course. I, I concur. Damn it. Anyway, um, so I saw a lot of psychoanalytic readings of this film. Obviously, that's super there. The id ego, super ego, Freud, Lacan, etc. But that's I am going to talk about psychology, but not necessarily in that context. I'm mostly going to talk about mental health stigma. Ooh, I like this. Yeah. So mostly this kind of revolves at the very beginning of the film and the very end. I mean, obviously the narrator is suffering from some kind of, maybe self-imposed a little bit, but he has this very isolationist lifestyle. I mean, it seems like the first few minutes he's either at work or calling the Ikea lady to order more furniture. (laughs) And um, You got to get the plates with the tiny bubbles and imperfections. Yeah, and the yin-yang coffee table. I don't think he says yin-yang, but it's definitely a yin-yang. No, he definitely does. He also talks uh, about the Shrine Green Stripe uh, love seat and the hover... Oh, shit, I used to know all the of The hover this. bike yeah. in the little tiny... The hover X home Xer bike, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. That, that condo deserved to die. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> ghastly, I have to say. Um, but he, he doesn't really talk to very many people. He's very isolationist, which can cause severe depression, all kinds of these psychological symptoms. I mean, humans, regardless if you're introvert or extrovert, humans do need human interaction at some point in the day. Um, you know, tolerance is a thing, but that is definitely needed for most humans to have a fulfilling life. And he is obviously not enjoying one of those. But I do find it interesting. He goes to the doctor, says he has a sleeping problem, and this is the first time as an adult that I'm like, the guy's just not going to give him sleeping pills. He's having a sleeping problem. He probably has depression, and maybe that's why the guy was like, I'm not going to give you sleeping pills because that'll probably make you worse. I remember a psychologist saying to me that whenever depressed people come to him just saying, I want to sleep, that means their depression's usually pretty bad. So <laughs> he doesn't really try and encourage those types of behaviors, he try and encourage social interaction and you know i think the things that that doctor was trying to recommend but the guy but he doesn't also recommend him to go see a psychologist which you know after explaining the symptoms i would think that something along those lines would happen the narrator jack went to all these support groups now if you notice you know the guy the doctor recommends him to go to these um, but they're all for these physical ailments. There's no anxiety anonymous. I mean, there is an alcoholics anonymous group, which could be, that is considered a mental mm-hmm. health issue, but he never, ever, ever mentions going to AA at, at those meetings. I see AA on the paper when he's like yeah. going through them, but he never goes. Cause yeah. he always just talks about the bloodborne pathogens, patho- pathogens yeah. and the brain, brain parasites, brain parasites and sickle cell and tuberculosis. But there's no, there are no support groups for any kind of mental health issue. So constantly throughout this movie, Tyler's mentality through throughout this is kind of being discouraged, and he just keeps on getting wrapped up in these systems that kind of suppress expressing his emotions. The first time he actually sleeps through the night, you know, was he finally releases his emotions in a healthy manner. You know, that really powerful catharsis. He's learning to meditate. He's learning to manage himself. Mm -hmm. And then of course, when Marla comes in and someone can argue that 
Tyler being his libido expresses itself and he really wants Marla, but then part of him hates Marla. I like that. Part of him hates Marla because she is everything that he is in those support groups. She is the mirror of him and, you know, reminding him that he is not really a part of these social circles. He's projecting. Yeah. To use another psychological term, a self-rage at her because she's guilty of what he's done, right? Exactly. He he says, I want to grab her and tell you. You fake, you fraud, I need this. Because I'm a fake, and I'm a fraud. (laughs) Exactly. So, that is to say that he's he's really alone in suffering throughout what most people agree upon is his dissociative, um identity disorder which is um it's not a multiple personalities but a lot of people say that it's interesting he has this because there's no real inciting incident Uh, most of the time people with dissociative identity have a a repressed childhood Mm -hmm. some other trauma and then one of those identities is carrying that memory within it um, some pretty brutal, terrible things. If, if anything, if what Marla says in her that sex comment is true, she's the one that should have dissociative identity disorder. No doubt. Well, um, I feel like for Jack to be an everyman, the less we know about his past, the better. The only thing we do know about him is that he didn't have a great relationship with his father, and if Tyler represents anything, he's the ultimate uh, male role model. You were looking for a way to change your life. You could not do this on your own. All the ways you wish you could be... That's me. I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. Precisely. Um, but there's just, I guess to kind of wrap up, it's there's no one for him to turn to. Um, even though Marla is trying to understand, she really doesn't. I mean, she does say, I want to talk about this. But of course, he's like, no, you know, this conversation is over. I was leaving space for Tyler to be telling me to say this conversation is over. This conversation? This conversation? Is over. Is over. But because of all of this, he's unable to fully express his psyche, and he, you know, basically does a suicide attempt. Now, if this is real life and not Hollywood, shooting yourself partially in the head would not get rid of the other identity. Probably not. I mean, considering that early on he would learned healthy ways to kind of deal with this other identity. He was sleeping well, you know, getting lots of sunshine. It's still kind of there, but he was managing it. Then whenever he turns to the fight club, obviously it's way worse because Tyler's finally manifested himself. But one would think that if he had learned those coping mechanisms early, if the doctor had not, you know, just totally, you know, wrote him off and actually tried to help him. And if, you know, in our society that we actually kind of support people that have mental health issues that, you know, he wouldn't have committed suicide basically, because that, if that was real life and that person really had dissociative identity, they would have killed themselves because that would have finally quieted all the voices, but ended their life. Well said, well said. Well, I want to talk about two different things. I don't want to talk about one thing to talk about another thing. You just want to talk about two things. I want to talk about two different things in regards to Alex's analysis. And then I want to talk about a third thing, which is my own analysis. Perfect. So uh, I'll try to go as quickly as I possibly can. I think in terms of psychology, I think what we see in Tyler 
uh, the Tyler Jack dyad, is uh, sort of a breaking down of the mirror stage. He's unable to distinguish himself, you know, from these sort of projections, and again, from this uh, not even not necessarily even the projection of himself in Tyler, but the projection that society's sort of trying to foist upon him. Yeah, that, he's, you, he's, that you are your khaki pants. He's a worker. He's a worker bee. Right. He's a drone. Yeah. yeah. And so he's he's unable to sort of make that difference, and I think Lacan's essay on the mirror stage, I think, really bespeaks that. And I was highly tempted uh, to offer a reading for very, very personal reasons uh, about uh, self-mutilation and uh, cutting and uh, those sort of mm-hmm. things in terms of this film. The, the, the need to feel pain in order to feel because of an alienated existence. And uh, Oh, wow. I've never done it. I thought of this in a self-mutilation context. Wow, that's really good. What's, that's good. What, the, Everything you just said, Dustin, lead, led me to a realization I've somehow never had about this film is Tyler as the great enabler of Jack's life. Don't deal with your pain the way those dead people do. It just leads to the same thing. What does Tyler say? You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. We are all the same compost. You are the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the world. He turns the members of Project Mayhem into the same space monkeys he wants them to be. Yeah. They're all cogs in a machine, just like Jack was when just he was his machine. Now. Yeah, it's yeah. Now it's my. He machine. He just wants to control the machine. And that's the queen bee who is their slave. And that's well, and that's why I refer to uh, Tyler as a fascist as opposed to an anarchist because it's all about him. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's that, and again, that 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 sort of you know release, you know, because you're so emotionally distant from yourself and from others, yeah. you know, that need for pain. In order to experience that, especially that lie scene, you know. Oh my God, that scene's so good, and it hurts me so much. And uh, so I, I think about that in those terms. But what I want to do uh, with regard to the film, though, is I want to give sort of a formalist reading. And uh, I was hoping someone would do that. And because I mean, visually, of course, it is very, very interesting. It's it's, it's a very brilliantly shot film. It's very, very noirish. Absolutely. Well, many of Fincher's films are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. Totally his style. And, of course, the uh, the major influence on uh, film noir is German Expressionism. You know, German Expressionist films like Fritz Lang's uh, Metropolis or, um, you know, Robert Veen's uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, F.W. Murnau's uh, Nosferatu and others uh, sort of, you know, created the style of these dark shadows, this very moody nature. Uh, and then they were later sort of applied to film noir and these crime films uh, that we had in the 1940s up into the 1950s. And, uh, in fact, you know, the, the, the connection with Expressionism is so great uh, that uh, Robert Stamm, in fact, calls film noir American Expressionism. Ooh, I like that. And uh, that it's, just, it's simply just our version thereof. And I, I think perhaps what we see with uh, Fincher's film here is a 21st century American meta-expressionism. And uh, that's the term I'm, I'm making up. Uh, for the sake okay. of this show, because what what happens that's expressionist? Of course, there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of shadows, but it's not sort of the angular uh, geometric patterns that you find, like in Long's Metropolis or in Veen's uh, Dr. Caligari. It, it, it's uh, most of the uh, the uh, the the angles and lines and the expression that is being expressed in German expressionism is sort of the horrors of World War One. Uh, the, uh, the the psychological alienation that the nation is feeling in Germany after that 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 in the, in their minds terrible defeat that they suffered uh, at that time and then of course you know you apply this I think very interestingly to a 21st century uh, Jack slash Tyler Durden character who has had some suffering there's been some things that have gone on in his life that are you know less than the uh, you know 100 uh, percent most perfect or best but 
has not survived something like World War One. We have no Great War. We have no Great Depression. Precisely, and and, and so there there's this alienation that he experiences in that he's just he he's he's sort of listless. He is uh, w- without without any sort of tying lines uh, to to help him out. And so uh, there's a different sort of trauma that it, that is bringing this thing up. But most of the uh, angular lines that express the sort of fractured mental horror in uh, German Expressionist films are diegetic. They're within the actual text of the film. They're within the actual cinematic world of the film. And fascinatingly, most of uh, that which expresses that fractured psyche uh, that is being experienced by Jack's character is non-diegetic. And I think that's where this becomes metatextual is because when uh, the, the very first phone call to Tyler happens, uh, the, uh, the, the waveform, you know, I don't know if you know about celluloid and film and how it's put together, but the way sound works, it travels, it's, it's a light pattern on the side of the 35-millimeter uh, film reel, and uh, it actually, they, they, they've popped it uh, to make it crackle. Uh, when he starts uh, reaching for the phone. And that's, of course, not diegetic sound. That's non-diegetic sound. Uh, there is a, a semi-diegetic moment where we see these little flashes of Tyler, the subliminal flashes, but, of course, no one else is seeing them. It's not the actual world you know, of, of, of the film. Again, uh, Dr. Caligari being sort of a primary example of the sort of descent into madness uh, that we experience. And, and generally, it is sound that indicates uh, this fracturing that uh, is being experienced. That the, those sort of bassy pulses, those those droning thumps uh, that we begin to experience in the in the course of the film. And then there are the moments when you're being drawn uh, to the fact that this film is going on, and yet there's these subliminal thoughts that we're suffering from. And when Tyler's cutting in, stitching in um, these pornographic pictures into children's films, and drawing attention to the cigarette burns, moments of frisson where you don't actually see the sprockets of the actual film, but the film is sort of uh, digitally altered in such a way that you see the sprockets of the mm-hmm. film, and it begins you to see, shift back yep. and forth. Mm-hmm. That uh, he's experiencing this sort of mental angst, but of course, none of that's actually going on in the diegetic world of the film. It's actually drawing attention to the fact that it is a film that's mm-hmm. about a fractured psyche, and the film itself is that which is fractured. Does that make sense? Uh, no, absolutely, and it starts <laughs> early when he is splicing those frames of pornography in, and he points at the cigarette burn. Mm-hmm, right. In the business, we call them cigarette burns, which and, we don't have anymore. Right, we don't, because everything's all digital now. Yeah, um, well, especially Fincher films. Right, uh, and you know, who is one of those early adapters of, of 100% digital uh, cinematography. And, but, but again, at, at the time and place in which the film is being shot, it, it's drawing attention to the medium itself, that the medium itself is fractured. Um, and that is how we see the fractured psyche of, of the of the of the character, rather than again diegetically uh, inside the film. Uh, there there are a few exceptions to that. I mentioned the subliminal message. Also, the sex scene is, is quite expressionistic. Mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah. think in, in a great many ways. But for the most part, the film is pretty straightforward, and our clues to what um, sort of madness that uh, is being experienced by the character is only based on uh, that which um, draws attention to the fact that it's media. Of course, the, the visions of Tyler themselves, of course, occur diegetically, which would be the, the other major example um, of that. And I began to think about just in terms of this, uh, again, consumerist culture that lacks a great war, that lacks a great depression, that is sort of seeking some um, – seeking, I would say, dare say, a, a form of alienation. And where we find it is in the media. 
that the media is sort of the source of alienation because what it does is it records and reflects upon those great tragedies and those great traumas, and we lack it. And so what media does, I think, many times uh, for millennials and Xers is draw attention to the fact that they have not suffered like others have suffered, and then we begin to create this sort of uh, narrative where we have to sort of manufacture suffering. I'm a guy who listened to a lot of The Cure in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, hang, hung around with those cats in their black eyeliner. And uh, dudes, Did I Did mean, you wear black eyeliner yourself? I have. Um, but that's a whole... And there are no pictures. Um, they've all been destroyed. But that being said, there was a sort of need to be this sort of suffering soul, this sort of suffering artist. Uh, because, uh, I, again, I think part of uh, what it means to be human is to deal with one's suffering. And, of course, we all have our own sufferings. And I think the problem that the film is really reflecting on diegetically then, based on this sort of mediated suffering where we're seeing the videos of Auschwitz and we're seeing uh, you know, scenes from the civil rights movement, it, 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 the, the problem that the film is failing to help us recognize is that we don't – don't have to compare our suffering to recognize that we actually have suffered in some wise and then to deal with said suffering and begin to move forward. And so, again, I want to call this 21st century uh, metatextual American expressionism. And uh, I, I think, you know, even though it's made in 1999. You've got to write a journal article that has that huge phrase in it and well. sound really smart. <laughs> But well, thank you for that. But that that that's sort of the reading I want to give is that the film itself is sort of you know in, in its very bones, you know, and the actual media itself is sort of reflecting uh, oh. that sort of tension. It's very well said, Dustin. Yeah, I like that. So now we need to move on uh, from uh, some really great analysis. Thank you again, dear co-hosts, for that. And we have to give our final verdict. We have to say shelf or trash, else or instead, uh, with this film. Let's choose. Let's choose wisely. And so uh, I begin with you, Miss Bohannon. What say you? Uh, it's a shovelable film. I mean, I have it. This is one of the few movies for the show I haven't had to download or tour it. And um, I've had it for a while. I don't know where I got my copy from. Probably from aforementioned ex-boyfriend. Because I think he probably got the special edition and gave me his old copy. It's, it's a great film. Um, I didn't give it a rating earlier, so I will give it 8 out of 10 uh, lie-induced chemical burns. Uh, a pain and a pleasure to watch this movie um i will say for my else is else is yeah i was gonna call them instead for some ungodly reason for my else's for this film i think i'd go with any guy Ritchie movie especially snatch i really love snatch and i and brad pitt (laughs) i know it's just because of the brad pitt connection but they're they're both fighting movies. Obviously, Snatch is a little more lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lock Sock would be good as well. I'm a fan of rock and roll myself. Yeah, those are all really good films. Um, and I'd also go with the recent Fincher release, Gone Girl. I mean, both dealing with unreliable narrators and uh, crazy shit going down. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So the, I think those are my picks until I can remember the last one. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? Well, it is on my shelf as a collector and a completist. Uh, it, it it goes up there with the rest of the Fincherography. And so I I definitely recommend you watch this movie. Whether you put it on the shelf or not, I think you have to see it. It's, it's one of those Required movies. Required viewing, definitely. Uh, definitely. And so... It it does have a lot going for it, and you may connect with it, uh, and certainly give it a shot because there's a lot uh, going on. And I I kind of had this funny thought after watching it that 
of the talented lead cast we have here with Pitt and Norton and Carter and directed by David Fincher, that the sole Oscar winner on this cast is Jared Leto, which is kind of wow. interesting when you think about it. Um, That's when you think about the Mannings and their Super Bowl rings. It's one of those moments. Yeah. yeah. And so it's uh, it's interesting. Um, with this, uh, else I say um, some odd picks. I'd say watch Warrior, which is about fighting mm-hmm. brothers, and it's just I think it's a it's a fun movie. It's a good movie. Um, I would also watch Shaun of the Dead um, because there's kind of this interesting little uh, adult growing up um, bromance thing happening uh, towards the beginning of Fight Club Excellent when you first pick. meet Tyler. Uh, but finally, uh, to complete. Uh, the descent into madness. There's this moment when the narrator walks into the bar towards the end of the film when he's putting the things together. The uh, He's traveling to the different cities looking for Tyler. Uh, he walks into the bar and the bartender looks up at him and it is almost a very, very eerie echo of another man walking into a bar and a bartender addressing him. And you complete this descent into madness by watching The Shining. Uh, right alongside there. Nice. Oh my, yeah. Excellent pick. Well, that's that's, a, good, that's yeah. a good call. You've always been here. And so I think there's a very interesting uh, dialogue going on between those two films that may be interesting to explore down the road. Excellent pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I appreciate that very much. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? What do you think? Um, obviously, it's on the shelf. Um, again, I don't own very many films. This is one of the films that I own. Um, I, I, you know, I watch it at least once a year. Uh, and I absolutely adore it. I give it six bags of the richest, creamiest fat in the land and six shitty haikus out of a possible 12. Your Elsa's are instead, sir. Um, well, you know, from the, the Fincher oeuvre, uh, I would recommend Seven and Zodiac because I feel like they're both having uh, their own conversations with the violence in the world and with uh, a man's place in the world and, and what one is supposed to do to reconcile with the violence of the world and, and the, the horror uh, that is being alive. Uh, and I think those are both films that are, you know, definitely saying something um, about that and about how we reconcile with the things that we see around us. And again, both um, more Zodiac, uh, but they're both dealing with madness and um, how characters respond to that and, and how they can allow things to possess them. Other than that, I, I'm going to recommend the three other 1990 films, 1999 films about uh, men stuck in the corporate shuffle. Uh, two of these three we've discussed on the film, The Matrix, American Beauty, and Office Space. Um, I feel like these four films are basically the perfect you know, weekend film festival. Um, you know, Two double bills, uh, one on a Friday night, one on a Saturday night. Because uh, they all complement each other extremely well. They're all talking about a lot of the same things. Uh, they're all very dark. They're all very funny in their own ways. Um, and they're all very awesome. The Matrix and Fight Club most so, obviously. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am going to go ahead and say Shelf as well. I, I really like the movie a lot. I think it's a fantastic movie. As Arthur said, it is must much watch cinema that you, you absolutely have to catch it. Uh, for my Elsa's, um, I, I would say, you know, moving chronologically forward in time, uh, that you begin with Robert Veen's uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and, you know, sort of see those expressionist roots uh, play um, out. And then, you know, also this sort of fractured psyche. And keeping with that theme of the fractured psyche, I think you move forward to 1960 and see Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and uh, Norman Bates' sort of divided self um, as he's wrestling with that. And then flash a little bit forward to David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. 
And again, Ooh, another great pick. Divided like set of cells, and that that that's a fun quadruple bill. I think uh, if you watched all four of those movies chronologically, Ooh, yeah. in order. This wasn't my pick, the one I forgot, but I totally thought of another one. A Clockwork Orange. How about that one? We got the old ultraviolence. Yeah, ultraviolence, mental health issues, uh, and crazy shit going down, and it's got all of it. That that's another movie I only watched one time, but I think it's great. But I've only watched it one time. Yeah, I've, it, it only took once for me too. All right, well, thank you very much, dear co-host, dear listener. We'd love to hear what you think about our picks, what you think about our analysis, and uh, we'd love to get your feedback. The place where um, that can happen is going to be delineated by um, two of my dear co-hosts at this time. All right, message me. Please, please message me. Or at least reply to my... Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about social media means by which the conversation can continue? I'm going to seize it from Arthur. I'm going to... Hit him in the ear. <laughs> okay. So- oh, you punched me in the ear. Who does that? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I messed it up. No, no, it was perfect. Okay. So our feedback from the book face, we had a certain Brigham Cole posting on our timeline about Monty Python, and it's a really, really good bit, so I'm going to just read it. I just realized that one of the jokes on Holy Grail has a potential double meaning because I thought I misunderstood the joke. It literally took me over a decade to come to this realization. The joke in question. How do you know she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. I got better. I always took that as John Cleese's peasant's character being caught in a lie. So he says, I got better, meaning I can do better or tell a better lie or story. It only just dawned on me that it could also mean I literally got better, as in I reversed the spell and cured myself. I don't know how I overlooked that interpretation. I've only ever thought of the second one. It never that, occurred me to too. Me. It never... Because it's a recurring joke throughout the movie, so I've always put it together. Uh, but yeah, I'm getting no, better. I'm feeling much better now. Yeah. I, but no, I, it never occurred to me that it, well, I got better. Like I've I've got better lies. I've never even thought of that one though. I like I think that's a funny. Yeah. Um, the second bit I did, I posted a post through the genre cast about you could watch a movie a day for the rest of your life at AMC theaters by paying a monthly subscription fee in some um, <gasps> new theaters. Cool. How do you guys think about it? Good idea or not? Depends on what the fee is. It's it's, it it's was, within the range of thirty yeah. to forty dollars. It was thirty five to forty five. If it was forty five, that's IMAX three D, and that's a movie a day. Yes. Correct. Wow, a dollar yeah. a dollar. You're a dollar a day, pretty much. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And there, AMC's got the earlier matinees, and I have yeah. this sort of job with flexibility where I could oh, get free. In the I, love morning those and t- I love those. I love those two thirty ones. I love man. I wish. I wish more movies showed at nine. I'm just saying. I love a matinee. I love it. Yeah. To which Caleb Masters replied, "Oh, period, snap, period," and then Shane Arlington, rep- uh, Arrington, replied. Will I be able to watch the interview? <laughs> and then I said, at this point, that sounds optimistic. And that was before Sony said they dropped uh, showing the interview. So, And then a bunch of people liked our recent photo that we just posted of all of our good trash genre casters with their new mugs Thanks, that I gave Alex. them for Christmas. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for that feedback seized um, from the hands of Mr. Arthur Gordon. I appreciate that, Miss Bohannon. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which a conversation could be held? Dustin, mm-hmm. I see in Twitter the strongest and smartest men and women who've ever lived. I see all this potential, and I see it squandered. God damn it, an entire generation liking cat photos. 
posting their meals. Slaves. <laughs> slaves with digital collars. Pop-up ads has us cha- have us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit that we don't need. We're the middle children of history. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is an economic war. Our great depression is social media. I would agree with that. We've all been raised on the internet to believe that one day we'd have viral vines, that we'd be YouTube commenters and podcasters, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. And we are very, very retweeted off. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from that Twitter? Don't Stewart. What about the Twitsy Twitter? Stifle your laughter, child. Uh, a little bit. Not a whole lot. Uh, Caleb Masters sent us a link to the latest epic rap battle of history, which is a popular uh, series of YouTube videos. This one was delightful, though, because it was a throwdown between Steven Spielberg and Alfred Hitchcock. Relevant. That then features Quentin Tarantino and Michael Bay. Brigham also alerted us to the fact that uh, Nick Offerman's special American Ham is now streaming on Netflix, which I actually almost went and saw that live uh, at the House of Blues in Dallas, and it just didn't work out. So I'm glad I can finally see it. Uh, Shane Arrington gave us a lovely, lovely bit of feedback. He said, congratulations, and these are three separate tweets. I'm just going to read them all. Uh, Congratulations on episode 100, guys. You are better than ever. Looking forward to 100 more. Oh, that's great. And he hashtagged it, did he? No hashtags. Uh, That's all right. Uh, Another uh, pat on the back to us. He said he just finished the episode over the wire and loved... uh, He said he just finished the episode over the wire and said we might like the Serial Podcast. You may have mentioned this in previous episodes, to which I replied, yes, Jane, I do love cereal. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Of course, you can continue to give us feedback at iTunes, where you can give us a rating and also a comment there. We really, really appreciate ratings uh, whenever we can get them. We're really trying to push for those this month, uh, again, because it helps us get some exposure, especially when there's a lot of them coming at once. So as you're hearing these um, podcasts, as they travel through time to your ears, um, please, please go ahead and drop your review as quickly as you can, um, and uh, rather your rating. And if you want to include a uh, review, that would be fantastic as well. Whether it's a one star or a five star or anywhere in between, uh, we would just love to hear that feedback coming in from you, dear listener. But enough about that, because guys, it's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> This week's game are our favorite good because we again now I need I need to, I need to be, start all over. This week's game based on all of these week or month of one hundred episodes that we're doing this month of December is based on the show in the past. And this week's game is our favorite good trash fights. That's right, favorite good trash fights. Brought to you by Fight Club. Fight Club. The game will go on as long as it has to. Or longer. Sometimes it goes much longer. Much, much longer. <laughs> but that's going to be um, the, the the subject matter of the show, so I'm very, very excited to hear that. I begin with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? I feel like the most enjoyable uh, fights are the ones I get to sit back and just watch, and they usually unfolded between uh, Monsieur's uh, Stewart and Sells. Uh, 
Dating back to episode two. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. I think there's going to be a pattern here. With Monsieur Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty, uh, which really kind of kickstarted the dynamic and chemistry, I believe, of the hosts here uh, as uh, me and Dalton vied for the uh, love and affection of the faculty and Dustin just buried it, buried it under a hideous 1950s invasion of the body snatchers I might say also effectively buried it, but go on. Uh, We would see this becoming a recurring trend uh, once again as Dalton and I championed equilibrium uh, much again to uh, Dustin's chagrin uh, in which the two of them went round and round uh, trying to uh, make an argument for their pointing side of the uh, film. God, we went back and forth on that. Yeah. A lot of fights in those early days. Yeah, there was, there was a, a little caddy back then. The other uh, thing, uh, more recently, uh, was when we had guest host Nick Sanford, and he and lifelong lover uh, Dalton... <laughs> uh, That's went, accurate. ...went roundabout over the silence of the lambs and... And profilers yep. and their credibility and uh, usefulness in uh, crime fighting, and that That's was an amusing a episode. We cut a, a lot. I mean, we we went back and forth for probably ten minutes. About yeah, that was that was a that was a trip and a half. Uh, but finally, uh, I think the last couple I stand out would be me versus the group as I tried to defend uh, Teen Wolf and had my back against the wall as I tried to bury. John dies at the end. A very, very, very terrible Son film. Son of a bitch. I, I, you know, I rewatched John Dies at the End last week. That movie's hilarious to me. I just love it so much. Have you guys read the novel? No. No, I have not. I, I do like David Wong. Nor, nor the sequel, This Book is Full of Spiders, which is a great title. I would not read that book for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> because spiders. Well, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your favorite fights? Uh, Arthur mentioned all but one of mine. Um, I have a different perspective on them. Obviously, because of course. one of the more notable ones, uh, notably the wrong perspective, Proceed. well, actually the <laughs> correct perspective, because me and Dustin just tried as hard as we could to get Arthur to admit that John dies at the end is a great movie. And we could not. Arthur was staunch. Nope. Arthur also nope. came Wasn't back. Wasn't that his Hebrew hammer? That was his Hebrew hammer last year. That was the film he said should be stricken from history. It should be. It's a terrible, terrible piece of Likewise, work. I think that Teen Wolf should be stricken from history, and I'm still fucking mad at you for making me watch it, Arthur. I will never forgive you for making me rewatch Teen Wolf, despite the fact I got to rant about how racist it is. I will also never forgive you for making me watch Bad Boys 2. None of us were happy about Bad Boys 2. It just kind of happened. That's enough. I've heard enough crap from all of you. When I come down there and show you what a real star can do. I swear blow with the telephoto. No Bruckheimer, I work solo. If there's one thing I've learned, bitch, this game is about motherfucking money. I make that dollar, y'all. Motherfucking money. Even make Mark Wahlberg make some motherfucking money. Shopping, got a few drops of that got milk money. Rose to the rock, now I got that socks made of silk money. I ain't got that guilt money. I also found myself backed into a corner against you two on um, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Um, for many episodes, we talked about voiceover for probably the better part of the last part of that year. It kept coming up. And I, I maintain the voiceover in that movie is lazy. 
and it is not well done, and it annoys me to no end. One of the more recent ones, and I wouldn't even go as far as to call it a fight, but it was definitely a lengthy dispute, was me and Dustin over the gray. That was a feisty film. Yes, Show. I thought you had mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, that was I, that was a great conversation, because I really feel like we had a lot of opinions going back and forth. I mean, again, I wouldn't call it a fight so much as it was a... Uh, Intelligent discussion? Yeah. We really just differed on our readings of it, and, and just sort of the final conclusion of the film. More, more yeah. so than our, our, our debate about the quality of the film, which is where most of our fights sort of generate. Well, and I, I feel like the faculty and Equilibrium both have going for it. We disputed about the quality of the film and also the message of the film. Correct. Yes, because I, I think it lacks both quality and a good message. <laughs> uh, but th- those are my picks for our, our favorite on-air quibbles. Um, what I'm going to say, uh, and again, I think we've pretty much, you know, dove into the entire barrel. So I only have one other film that I want to mention, um, and it's a debate I had with Arthur. And I, I'm really kind of shocked that Arthur does not recall. But, um, you know, I elevated this film to the platinum shelf last year, and Arthur did not enjoy uh, Elijah Wood and Maniac. Oh, my God, I totally forgot he didn't like that movie. And, um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, again, I sort of stand. Now, John Dies the End is another one of those kind of big debates that we had. Uh, in that month of horror, um, but um, I really am still taken aback and aghast um, that Arthur lacked appreciation of Maniac. I didn't like Maniac, but at least it was an understandable and good attempt at art, whereas John Dies at the End is just a lump of crap streaming on Netflix for some reason. <laughs> but at least you know Maniac was trying to do something. I just think it failed in doing it. And uh, you couldn't be more wrong. But we're not going to get into that. You know, I forgot. There is another one. Me versus Hellraiser. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, you did yeah. not like Hellraiser. No, you didn't. And, I, the, and again, I was oh, I was kind of lukewarm on it when I finished it. But the more I thought about it, the more I was annoyed by it. And to this day, I, I don't get it. There's like 12 of those movies. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> well, the sequels are definitely a mixed bag. I'll give you that. Um, though you've not seen any of them. No. And I never will. But well, some of them are very good, and I, again, I want to recommend highly um, episodes two and six um, of that because they they involve Kirsty Cotton. So um, not gonna happen. Well, there you go, dear listener. There are our fights. What are your favorite fights that you have listened to us um, go round and round about in the course of the show? I know we've disagreed on readings in a few places, and uh, we've disagreed on just liking a film or not liking a film. And so, we would love for you to vote and uh, you know let them know that my dear co-hosts are frequently wrong, and uh, that would be very, very helpful information. But let's move on to what we always conclude the show with. with which is what's got us fired up this week in popular culture. You're on fire. That's how you know you're on a boat. Cause when you're hot, it's like you're burning up everyone else's boat. You're on fire. But I'm so fucking sick. I got ambulances pulling me over and shit. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, are you fired up this week? Um, I'm mildly fired, yes. I am mostly fired up about cereal, which Dalton, I know, is going to talk uh, no, about just, more. I'll- I'll just Tail piggyback up with piggyback you. Piggyback yeah. with me, yeah. Um, it is really good. I w- caught the first episode when it aired for the first time on This American Life, but th- I had to go somewhere, so I didn't get to finish it, and I didn't hear that it's going to be a reoccurring thing. So then it pops up that, hey, wait a minute, I recognize all these characters, and now it's like this huge movement. Um, but I am on episode six, and I am marathoning it, and it is the best because I love true crime. And uh, you can you can also just 
vomit about it some more, Dalton. It's so good. I, I mean, today when we're recording, um, December the 18th, Thursday, uh, the last episode just posted today, and um, it, it was a very satisfying conclusion uh, to the show. I, I, I gotta be honest, I almost cried at the end of it. A lot of the main criticism of the show focuses on, well, you know, this whole thing is happening because somebody died. Somebody was murdered. And yes, like all white people with a liberal arts degree, I am obsessed with the show. But at the forefront of my mind, every time I listen to Serial, is that a young woman never got to live her life because somebody took it from her. Um, and I don't understand that critique because I don't understand how you can listen to that show and not be thinking about it because it is the main focus of the show is that Heyman Lee in 1999 was murdered and we don't know for sure who did it. Anand Syed went to jail for that crime and he's been in prison for 15 years. And there is a lot of questions as to whether or not he did it. At the very least, there is reasonable doubt, which means that he should not have been convicted for it. Um... But again, I can't stop thinking about the fact that somebody died um, when I listened to Serial. And um, I really hope they do a follow-up on on it sometime, either in Season 2 of Serial or on This American Life. Because there's still so much more I want to know. There's still a lot of balls in the air at the end of the series. You know, a lot of questions about what's going to happen moving forward uh, with this case and with Anand Syed's life. Well, more on true crime, Anand. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Alexandra Bohannon. Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up? Not really. Um, I got to go see, uh, Chris Rock's top five, um, the comedy, uh, written and directed by Mr. Rock. Very and good movie. It is a very good movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, great writing, some great comedy, uh, some great performances. Rosaria Dawson knocks mm-hmm. it out of the park. It's a very personal film. It is. It is. It is. And as I was watching it and there's some very, uh, there are key moments with some of the music, the way it all plays together that, I felt like I was watching uh, the Black Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. And so it's it it plays very well. And there's a lot of scenes where he's when they're walking through the town or through New York, Manhattan, and there's some jazz music going on uh, through some of these uh, just expository type scenes, and it was very reminiscent of Manhattan. I think it's probably almost as personal, maybe a little more personal than. Uh, Woody Allen's. Uh, I I thought film. a lot about uh, Richard Linklater's before movies. There's a lot of walking, just uh, walking Rosario, yeah, Rosario Dawson and Chris Rock just talking about life. Um, I had a couple criticisms. Just I felt maybe some plot contrivances just to kind of push things along. Mm. But th- I think the writing, and the characters, really just just take it, and I think it's a really good movie. We also had to see Cedric the Entertainer have a threesome. Cedric the Entertainer in that movie is so funny. So funny. He's a motherfucking man in Houston. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up? I am. Um, a bit. The trailer is out for Terminator Genesis, however you want to say that fucked up spelling. You know, when that trailer started, I was really kind of... But Dustin then, is hanging himself with his own microphone. But then something happens. Um, and I won't tell you what in case you haven't seen it, but they kind of turn things on its head and there's some some gender subversion or gender role swapping. Um, and I, I don't know. It seems like they might be doing something interesting. Yeah, basically it's a reboot 
uh, of the franchise while sticking somewhat within the continuity that we know. But I, it looks like they might be doing some interesting things, and we'll see. Um, I'm more excited about this film than I was because I really do love the Terminator franchise quite a bit. See our episode over Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is one of the most perfect action films ever made. So we'll see. I doubt it'll be that good, but it'll probably be better than Terminator 3. So at least there's that. Um, I'm currently reading Star Wars Legacy, which is a comic book series set uh, 130 years after Return of the Jedi, uh, focusing on one of the descendants of Luke Skywalker, um, who has gone off the grid and is doing his darndest to try not to be a Jedi in a world, or rather a galaxy where the Sith have taken over once again, and they are ruling uh, in open uh, uh, Sith regality or whatever. Um, It's really good, and it's really interesting, uh, and I feel like it's saying a lot about the Star Wars universe, interestingly. Um, they you know, came out in probably 03 or 04, somewhere in there, and it ran for probably five or six years, I think. Um, it's a really great uh, comic series. Um, one of the better ones I've read in a minute. Uh, I haven't been reading many comics lately, but I, I'm really enjoying it quite a bit, so I definitely recommend you check that out. Caught up with Under the Skin, finally. Mm. Um, man, that's a movie. Whoa. Wow. That beach scene. Dude, that beach scene, the the scene with the, the the gentleman with the facial disfigurement. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a real guy with the real yeah, yeah. illness. Oh my gosh, it was it's such an interesting movie, and I probably will never watch it again because I really would rather not because it's not a pleasant watch and it's kind of a hard watch just in terms of the way it's paced and and what you're seeing. But it's also a very brilliant film that's saying a lot of things. I'm not even going to bother to go into because we talk about it for an hour. Finally, um, I have been on break from the Colbert Report for a couple of years now. I haven't watched it with regularity. This is one of my things. Go ahead, though. Yeah. I haven't watched it with regularity in years, but I have been watching the last two weeks. Um, tonight, as we're talking, actually, probably right now, uh, the final episode, uh, after nine years, the Colbert Report is coming to an end. Um, he interviewed Seth Rogen prior to the interview being pulled. He interviewed Smog the Dragon. Um, he has done you know, said farewell to some of the best segments on the show, such as Colbert Platinum and Better Noah District and Yahweh or No Way. Um, I certainly hope the last one for tonight is uh, Tip of the Hat, Wag of the Finger. I'm hoping for the word, man. I the mean, last I, word was a couple weeks ago. Well, with, I mean, I, the, the president did the decree, but I want yeah. him to really do the word because truthiness is what started it all off. That is true. So I, I'm hoping for that. Man, uh, Barack Obama doing the decree was awesome. That was a lot of fun. Um, that was a great episode, starting off this final two weeks uh, live at Georgetown University uh, in the heart of Washington, D.C. That show changed my life, man, in a lot of ways, along with The Daily Show. Uh, got me interested in politics when I was uh, you know, young. I, I was 14 uh, when the first episode of The Colbert Report aired. Um, no, I'm sorry, I was 15 when the first episode of The Colbert Report aired. Um, man, and it's wow, been almost exactly nine years um, and it's 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 been such a great show, and I, I wish uh, Stephen only the best. Uh, hopefully, he goes on to do great things um, as he takes over for David Letterman. But I'll, I'll always wish in my heart of hearts that the Colbert Report had just gone on forever. Yeah, I, I totally want to echo that, and I you know I love the Colbert Report, and I do think these last two weeks have been phenomenal. And I am a regular watcher um, mm. of the show, and so yeah, enjoyed that very very thoroughly. So that is one of the things that I am fired up about. The other th- uh, one of the other two things that I'm fired up about is I did finish my uh, watch of the uh, Paradise Lost documentaries, and I did not know how it ended. I just you know I I decided when I started watching this you know I don't actually know this. I'm not I'm familiar with the facts, 
and so I am not going to find out what ended up happening and uh, watched all three of them and uh, saw their conclusion and I will avoid the spoiler now but those are some amazing films and uh, I think a very very important conversation about rushes to judgment about the criminal justice system about the police I think they're very timely films um, in that um, you know we've been talking a lot lately in, in contemporary society about race in terms of the police but I think you know there's a broader conversation just to talk about general police overreach and uh, police power and uh, how that's sometimes abused, uh, especially in the, in the case of Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. Um, and so I won't say any more about that other than they're streaming currently on Amazon Prime. And, uh, dear listener, I could not recommend those six hours of your life uh, to be used in a better way. Um, so do, do, please catch that. Uh, the last thing I'm fired up about, and we sort of all talked about this off mic for just a moment, that we're all equally fired up, has been coming up all throughout the show, and that is what's been going on with the interview. Yeah, the Sony hacks by North Korea. Um, U.S. officials have finally come out today um, within hours of our record time to say that it was North Korean um, cyber um, espionage or cyber military, cyber terrorism, whatever you want to call it, um, that hacked Sony and leaked uh, – thousands and thousands of pages of uh, emails and uh, whatnot, also just their profit margins, which is an, a whole other interesting conversation. Hollywood keeps talking about all the money that they lose, and perhaps that may not actually be the case. And I would say what's true of Sony slash Columbia is probably true of all the other major studios uh, right now. And so there's that. But there's also just the fact that there is a threat of terrorism that is placed in the film. The film, the interview, of course, is about an assassination attempt on uh, Kim Jong-un. And it's a comedy, though. It's a Seth Rogen, um, James Franco film. It's supposed to be like a buddy romance, bromance movie. You know, the thing I keep thinking about when I think about the film is, uh, and just, you know, a couple comments that I've seen uh, from friends on Facebook and uh, just other places, you know, as I'm looking at the uh, sort of media glut uh, that we're seeing right now, is I keep thinking about the Aurora, Colorado shooting for The Dark Knight Rises and, uh, you know, how that, of course, hurt box office in crazy ways. And uh, one thing I said to my wife, because we saw it the day after, is uh, we're going to go to the movies because we're not going to let the terrorists win. And somehow Sony and uh, a a great many theater chains have chosen to let them win. And that really, really um, puts a bee in my bonnet. And and the motivations, as you read uh, the statement made by Sony and also sort of the uh, statements made by uh, the whatever, you know, freedom and liberation, you know, sort of moniker that the uh, North Korean uh, cyber terrorists Mm -hmm. are going by um, right now actually reveals to us the worst of both nations. in that, you know, uh, obviously it's an autocratic dictatorship uh, in North Korea, and uh, so that, you know, sort of affront on uh, their head of state is uh, something that they can't handle, and they, they, they sort of criticism that's just not allowed. It reminds us of Stalinist Russia and other, you know, sort of situations where it's just not okay to make fun of their guy. And so there's, there's that side that is the worst in North Korea, but also the justification that Sony began to talk about, about the, uh, the detriment to uh, ticket sales 
for other films and the nearby restaurants um, of uh, you know the the sort of you know money is really the reason why they're yeah this. they're not they're not pulling it for safety they're pulling it because they they worship the dollar which is sort of again that North Korean um, you know Marxist critique of capitalism and so our critique of uh, what North Korea is all about in, as far as autocratic dictatorship is definitely being made evident but also North Korea's um, criticism of America is being made very evident and I think we're both at our worst right now and I find that to be interesting and as Nick Sanford has said you know movies are very very important they reveal much of what's going on inside and within societies and I think the whole kerfuffle that we're experiencing right now is showing so, some of the worst of what both nations are about So, well, there you go, dear listener. What are you fired up about? We'd love to hear about that via those various means of social media that we've mentioned earlier on in the show. Uh, next week's episode is our last episode of the year. It's our year-end episode as such, and therefore we will be giving our GTGC awards. There we'll- is no film assignment. Nope. Be sure to be back next week um, right after your Christmas time. Uh, celebrations to just to hear uh, what we think about what's happened so far this year. And, of course, uh, we may even talk a little bit about the last 100 episodes um, as this is this month of 100 um, as we celebrate hashtag 100 more. And uh, so we're very, very excited to do that. But in the meantime, uh, go catch a holiday release of something. Uh, They are going to release a couple other movies, it turns out. And uh, realize that these movies do help us reflect on who we are as a people, who we are as human beings individually, and uh, are fruit for excellent conversation. And that's really what makes them so much more valuable than 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. And until then, until we see you next time for that show, uh, we hope you have a great and happy holiday. And we'll see you next time dustin you met me at a very strange time in my life they call him a soap maker i'm just surprised at that of all the things you could call tyler durden i'm just gonna call him a soap soap maker (laughs) is there there a word for soap maker i make soapologist i mean well well, i think he means like the last names that people would always have in like the middle ages like like a like a haberdasher or a smith i'll look it up The top hit from Wikipedia says that someone who makes soap can be called a soaper, a sopper, or a saboni. I'm a fan of saboni, but I also kind of like sopper. We all like saboni. We all vote for this. We want the saboni. It's well, it's giving me a saboner. Should I wait? (laughs) I don't know. I just, I feel like all the wind's out of my cells now. Um, What are we, chocolate? No. I love you guys. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm I'm paying. Bye.
fuck you guys. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> fuck you guys. I do not. Okay, I'm gonna start talking about Fight Club just to show you. See, no, no, you can't come back. Go away. <laughs> Go away. Yep. He's back and she's talking about Fight Club. Here we are. Wow. You'll find out in the outtakes. No, you fucking will not. What are you hooligans doing in my home? I go to pee and everything just shatters. You threw me for a loop. Yeah. You just took the wind out of our sails, Dalton. You took the wind out of my sails by leaving. <laughs> what happened? All I did was I So he then he goes to these these Support. fuck you fuck you fuck you <laughs> fuck you so much support groups God what damn did you it. see tell me I want to know <laughs> I don't even know what they're laughing at. I'm just. I funny. saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. I saw the sign. The Ace of Spades. The, the Ace, Ace of, of Spades. spades. Sorry. All right. I am expressing myself through song, and that's the way. <laughs> oh, is it good? It's really good. I like it a lot. Okay, continue. Or start. <laughs> I, I never finish. We know. Boom, nailed it. Nailed the f- oh God, Marla Singer has been the death of my love life. Christ! Every- oh my God. Okay, so yeah, you, have a, have, a you have a Marla. Yeah, of course you're into her. Guys, I've got like movie. three or four Marlas just on a rotation. <sighs> Jesus, this movie killed. Fourteen-year-old Dalton should not have seen this movie because Marla Singer ruined me. Yeah, I, yeah. Ugh. It took me a long time to dig my way out of that hole, I'll tell you that. 